pastor's message this morning is taken from Romans chapter 13, the verse 7 verses, and the title is, No Authority Except from God. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be afraid of power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need wisdom. We humble ourselves before you because we don't have the natural insight. We don't have even the natural instinct to know how to apply, even how to understand Scripture. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts, to understand it. Lord, Christ we need him. We need Christ in us, Lord, so that we will do what we are commanded to do. As we live in this world, we know that we have authorities over us. I pray that we would not be of a rebellious spirit, but that we would trust our entire souls, our entire being to you in your purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. History will show that last year, 2020 and even continuing now in the year 2021, as well as many years to follow, will be monumental years of the calendar for many reasons. Now much of the, our country and much of the world have been in fear because of a virus, a new virus that was not on the stage of the world before 2020, it seemed. Uh, COVID-19, we're all familiar with that. Maybe equally, you have people that are concerned with the response of that virus from the governments, not just our local government, not just our state government, not just the federal government, but governments worldwide. At the behest of listening to medical experts in light of this virus, most governments around the world for the first time in recorded history, instituted lockdowns on healthy people, limiting their citizens' abilities to work for a living, seek improvements to their health, buy or sell, travel, gather in assemblies, even church gatherings. On the other hand, these same agencies saw that was in their authority and purview to begin mandating masks to be worn by healthy people, 
social distancing to be observed by everyone, regardless of your condition, and the posting of guidelines, governmental medical guidelines in public places, and even mandating vaccines. And perhaps we will one day have an accurate accounting of the damage done by the actual virus, which I expect will be high. But many contrive, and I'm one of them, that believe that when all is said and done, the damage caused by the actions of governments will have been, I believe, far greater. And in many ways, maybe we'll never know what would be worse. Maybe we're asking a chicken and the egg sort of a question. But what we can't say is that what governments did in the past two years were not unprecedented, nor did they have far-reaching effects. Lest we forget, 2020 was also a year of dramatic civil unrest within nations. In our own nation, the death of George Floyd, it seemed like that was the spark that lit a flame, literally, that brought about billions of dollars in damages, which were promoted, in fact, defended by progressive ideals and politics, uh, popular media, and so forth. Not only did this account for billions of dollars in damages, but the homicide rate, probably because of the governmental, the COVID stress, as well as the political and ideological pressure, as well as the sinfulness of the hearts of men, coincided with the 42% increase in homicide rates in our country just last summer. Last year, the murder rate was increased 36% in our country. And as I understand, 2021 is not looking much better. All these things are happening now, and we all have our positions that we have, our convictions when we look out at the government and we look at the policies that were created and are still being enacted. And we all probably vary slightly within this church regarding those governmental mandates, laws, various actions. And while we do that, we have Romans 13, 1 through 7, looming in the background. In fact, it's in the foreground for Christians. It's the authority for Christians. Verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And this is hard to square with when we reckon with the existence especially of evil governments. It's one thing to look back on years 2020 and 2021 now, and, and we cannot say when we look back at those that everyone in government is trying to hurt its citizens. That would be a foolish assertion to make. Nor would I say that everybody in government is righteous in their perspectives or their, their desires or their ideals. But this is hard to square. This verse is hard to square, especially when we consider evil governments. And we don't have to look very far back in history. In fact, we can look around the world right now and we can look around and say that we recognize that there are evil governments explicitly promoting evil 
in their countries, undergirding it with laws and with the power of the sword, encouraging or restraining, encouraging evil or restraining good. In recent history, last century, we have the rise of a new ideal called communism and a new ideal called fascism and Nazism. And these ideals eventually became the backing and, the, and, and, and strengthened by governments like Russia and China and Germany and Italy and Japan and over 100 million citizens of those nations, those governments, were effectively murdered by their own leaders or their laws that their leaders enacted. And the, the horrible nature of those laws led to over 100 million deaths last century. Evil acts of governments seem to be, in fact, part and parcel to history. You cannot read history and say that you agree with actions that governments have taken when you see the results of those actions really on the face of them often always or intermingled at least with evil, either intentions or outcomes. But it would be helpful for us before we go into Romans 13 much further to remind ourselves that the Apostle Paul is an expert in Scripture. And by that I mean he's an expert in Old Testament Scripture. He knows his scripture inside and out. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the zealous one who led the charge from the Sanhedrin against the church. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, of the Benjaminites. He was an Israelite, if there ever was one. He knew his Old Testament. And there are five things that Paul knew that I just bring out for our kind of just to put under us a basis for what we're going to see in Romans 13. There's five historical facts about God's revelation in the Old Testament that the apostle knew. First, he knew about the fall of mankind. He knew about sin entering into God's creation. And he knew what happened at the very beginning when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden. Genesis 3.22 the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he is taken, was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every one, every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And there's a theme here that Paul himself works out in Romans 13, verse 4, as well as the Apostle Peter. But if you do wrong, in verse 4 of Romans 13, be afraid, for he, that is the government leader, does not bear the sword in vain. He does not bear the sword in vain. And Peter says, be subject, in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That punishment is what I want you to realize or to consider here. The removal from Eden of Adam and Eve was upheld by the authority of God and enforced by what? The sword. 
And that sort indicated, as Paul referenced it here, the right to punish Adam and Eve if they were to transgress God's removal of them from the garden. So it is that government, since that day, has had the power to do the same. To enact punishment on evildoers, as Paul mentions. But God's role in providentially ordaining governments gets even more explicitly human. Where it's not an angel enacting God's authority, it's human leaders. We can start with Pharaoh, can't we? Because explicitly God says of Pharaoh, this wicked king, this wicked ruler of Egypt who did not know Joseph and did not know Joseph's family, looks out and he sees the children of Israel and how great they had become in his land, and he begins to persecute them with hard labor, servitude. And God tells Pharaoh through Moses, his prophet, that I am going to bring my people out from underneath you. But at the same time, he tells Pharaoh, I'm going to harden your heart. And what he says about Pharaoh is telling, and we saw this in Romans chapter 9. Exodus 9, 16. This is Yahweh speaking through his mouthpiece to Pharaoh. For this purpose I have raised you up. To show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And when we come to Romans 9, we realize that God has put Pharaoh in his position as an enemy of Israel in, in order to show God's sovereignty over the nations. Over Pharaoh. To harden whom he will and to show mercy whom he will. Even over the king of all of this land and probably the greatest king of the land in those days, Pharaoh, God, was sovereign. And he raised him up. He appointed him to that role to show his power over him. We can even look at the nation of Israel. Third, the third example that Paul would know, the third historical feature that Paul would know. When God formed the nation, Israel, when he made a covenant with them at Sinai, he did not just give them moral laws to govern them in their conscience. He gave them civil laws. He organized them as a nation, as a state before him, as a government that could enact justice by the power of the sword. Fourth, not only did he do that for Israel, merely, namely organize them into a nation, into a government, he also divided them sovereignly. The kingdom split in Israel was something Paul would know very much about. God speaks to Jeroboam by the prophet Ahijah in 1 Kings 11:35, And he says, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand. His son's meaning Solomon's son, Rehoboam's hand. So Solomon had sinned before God. He married all those wives and concubines. And he had fallen into idolatry. And God said, I'm going to take your kingdom away from you. And he promises this to Jeroboam. And I will give it to you, ten tribes. And this we find is fulfilled in 1 Kings 12, 15. So the king did not listen to the people, that's Rehoboam, for it was a turn of affairs, listen to how this is spoken about, brought about by Yahweh, by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word which he spoke to, by Ahijah, to the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam no sooner becomes 
the king of the northern ten tribes of Israel, which God says here was brought about, or the, the prophet says here was brought about by the Lord. He no sooner becomes the king of those northern ten tribes as he pronounces the creation of two golden calves. One set in Dam and one set in Beersheba so that the people of the northern ten tribes which he now is king over can worship these calves so that they don't have to go to their enemies in the southern kingdom to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah, Yahweh. And so one of the first acts Jeroboam does as a king that God has ordained as king is to enact the observance of idolatry in the land by a kingly order. This idolatry continued among the kings of Israel until Samaria, that was the capital, if you would, of the northern kingdom, is sacked by Assyria in 722. The same Assyria that God calls in Isaiah 10.5, his rod, God's rod. And Assyria's own fall was prophesied in Isaiah 10 as coming by the sovereign decree of God. And we know that it was by a king named Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon that was the means of God's wrath against Assyria. And so we see fifth, and there's so many more, we could look at the whole story of the Old Testament to see how God rules in the kingdom of men. But in Jeremiah 25, 27, 5-7, we see an illustration of, of a pagan king who is called, and of a very limited group of people in the Old Testament, this pagan king is called my servant by Yahweh. My servant. Let that sink in. Three times, in fact, in Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar is explicitly called the Lord's servant. Chapter 27, verse 5. God is speaking here. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whoever it seems right to me. You know what that is? That's the right of the creator to do what he wills with the creature. Romans 9. That's not a New Testament doctrine. Paul taught that knowing the Old Testament, knowing God, who he is. And this is God speaking. I give it to whomever seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations, and here those nations are Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon, and Judah, Jerusalem being the capital, shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, meaning it comes to an end. That means God has a timeline to where these kingdoms would be raised and where they would be defeated, where they would fall. Then many nations and great kings shall make him, that is Nebuchadnezzar, his son, his grandson, his people, their slave. These six nations conspired together to fight against Nebuchadnezzar, but all for nothing, since it was, albeit unknown to them, God's servant, Nebuchadnezzar, who would do his will. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a 
worshiper of false gods. He, even as we know in Daniel, set up an image of himself, a massive image to be worshipped in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar himself would eventually see things God's way. Daniel 4 is a recital of this great king, this, this conqueror of conquerors, this king of kings, as it were, humbling before the Most High God. Daniel 4.29 begins a series, uh, 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 really the historical uh, narrative behind the whole chapter. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is out and he's looking over his kingdom and how great it is and he begins to boast in himself. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have built by my power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words, it says, were still in his mouth, a voice fell from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as the word fell, it was fulfilled. And he was driven from among men. And he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet as the dew from heaven, with the dew from heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. And he was humbled. What a merciful thing that God did to that king. What a merciful thing. It's better to be humbled like that than to be exalted like Pharaoh and hardened. Because this is what comes from that humility. Dan, Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High. You know, he knew who he was. He had Daniel in his kingdom. He had Shadrach, Me uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in his, key, in his kingdom. He knew who the Most High was. And he praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, even the king of kings, as it were. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And here's the history that Paul knew well as he writes to us, Romans chapter 13. He writes to us regarding our duty to submit to those in governmental authority. And they don't answer every question or concern that we might have, even as we read these. I'm hoping that you're 
questions are coming to your mind regarding how we ought to live in relationship to evil governments because we're facing that in this country. But they do make clear the basis and the fundamental assertion that Paul brings in verse 1, and that's the the only verse that we'll consider this morning, is submission to God and government. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Now I'm going to go through this verse briefly this morning, and we're going to touch on it more next week, but I want us to just... I just want us to put away, I want God to work in you. Because this has been a year where rebellion has been, I just feel so justified in my desire to rebel this past year. And I'm not saying there's not questions that we need to ask or there's not a basis for our concerns as Americans. And we're going to get into all of those details. What about the Constitution? What about... All of those things, but at the base, I want us to just come to Scripture and see that God rules in the kingdom of men, and He gives authority as He wills, and where He gives it, we are bound to obey. Because it's God that we are bound to obey. And so that's, I want us to be chastised a little bit this morning by Paul. Every person or every soul is really what he means by person here. And this should not be limited. This is a word that really means every being, human being that lives. But I think we have to come to this within the context and say, Paul has just told us in verse 2 that we are not to be conformed to this age, to this world. As Christians, he's told us that we are in union with Christ. We have nothing of this world to concern us to, meaning we are not to be driven to uh, its morality or its way of thinking. The way that they pursue, the things that they pursue, should not be what we pursue as Christians. Romans chapters 3 through 11 tells us we are children of God, right? We are not children of this age. We are being transformed by the renewal of our minds. And now he's saying here, submit yourself, every soul, meaning you, pastor, in churches, bishops, back then, still to this day, deacons, husband, wife in the church, every Christian is what I think the apostle is meaning here. But it does mean everyone is bound to obey this. Now, next week, I want to ask the question, why does Paul go from loving our neighbor so dramatically, and then he winds up there at the end of this chapter, why does he insert government here in between? From love in chapter 12, verse 9, to love in chapter 13, verse 8, he puts government in between. And many, many scholars say, that's just an assertion. Somebody else did this. Paul didn't even do this. You believe that? No, I believe Paul did this on purpose. I believe God the Holy Spirit inspired this by the apostle's pen. And we'll look into more reasons why that will be. 
last week. But one of the reasons that, one of the things I pointed out when we did look in verse 2 of chapter 12, when we're not to be conformed to this world or this age, is that many have taken that, the Anabaptists, the separatists, took that and said, we need to be completely set apart from this world. We don't have anything to do with government agencies. We go out and we live in sex. We separate ourselves. We live in groups, and we still have these today, these groups. We, we, we don't have anything to do with the secular world. We're of a different kingdom. We're, we have a king that, kingdom that cannot be shaken. Why should we concern ourselves with the affairs of this world, right? And so they separate themselves altogether from it, and I think that's one of the reasons Paul tells us, no, you need to be obedient, submissive, rather, to the government that God has placed over you. So that we don't become sex. That we don't separate ourselves in an unbiblical fashion. We'll look at that more next week. We have something to do with this secular world. You know, when I was growing up, there were certain ideas within the church that I heard that a Christian doesn't need to have anything to do with government. That's, that's not a Christian's role. You know, we have a higher government. We're, we're seated in heavenly places, Colossians chapter 3, with Christ. We're not of this world, new creatures. And so, you know, ipso facto, now we don't have anything to do with the secular realm. And that made a big impression on me, and it was a wrong impression. In fact, a little bit of uh, confession to you, I haven't spent nearly as much time thinking about governments and how a Christian ought to relate to them as I have other things in Scripture. Last year was a real trial to me because it was kind of like, okay, you need to know something about this pastor. You can't just take your American civil liberties and all these freedoms that we kind of take for granted forever uh, you need to know what scripture says. And so realize this is that we have a responsibility before government. That's one reason Paul is teaching us these things. Our citizenship in heaven does not mean we don't have responsibilities in our citizenship now. Now, he says, be subject to governing authorities. Some say that this means to obey, but subjection, I think, gets at what the Apostle Paul means better. He is speaking of a sort of hierarchy which God has ordained here. Not one of natural development. This does not mean that people in government are smarter or more gifted than its citizens. That's not what he's saying. He's saying God has placed a hierarchy in place. And the two words that we see here that are very helpful for us is that while we submit... The word for governing authority can be rendered higher powers. Those who are above, that's what the Greek means. We subject ourselves to those who God has placed above us. Some have even argued that this means spiritual powers, but I think the context makes it clear that we're speaking of governmental authority. And so there's a sense here in this verse that Paul is saying a Christian should see that a government that God has ordained over them has a greater level of authority upon them than they themselves have. This is God's institution. He has put it over us. And that's what we see next. 
This is the reason for our subjection and their place above us. For there is no authority except from God. Authority structures. And here's what I want to tell the secular world as well as the church. Any authority that seems to be derivative from man is no authority at all. Every authority, he says, that there is in our relationship to our fellow human beings derives from God. Authority is not something, rights are not something that just come out of the blue. Authorities, it's the same thing. God establishes them. And those that exist have been instituted. That word can be translated ordained or appointed, established by God. Whatever God has instituted, that authority derives it fundamentally from God. Whatever he's instituted, whatever has authority from God, derives it from God. And I think this is Paul's concern. You know, this touches on family authority, church authority, even business, slave, master authority in the New Testament. We must submit ourselves, put ourselves under governmental authority, therefore, where it is found, because God has instituted that. He has endowed them, or it, with authority. And this brings about many questions. What about the church in relationship to the government? Right? What, how does that relationship work out? How about if we go back to those examples when Jeroboam set up those two calves in Beersheba, one in Beersheba and one in Dan, and, and he tells to the people of Israel, okay, we're, we're worshiping Yahweh this way now. He sets up the high places. We're going to obey Jeroboam? He was, he was, in no uncertain terms, explicitly in Scripture, appointed to that position by Yahweh. You going to obey him? Should the three Hebrews bowed to the image of Nebuchadnezzar because he was God's servant? You know, God told Israel, Ju Judah, he told the kings, do not resist Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to come to you. Do not resist him. Serve him. The captives did. Daniel, the three Hebrews, did serve him. Did they bow to the idol? No. Now the answers to these questions may be simple. Those questions may be simple. They, they can be answered when we go to Acts chapter 4 verse 19. When we hear Peter, he's standing before the Sanhedrin being questions. Well, does it seem good to you if we obey God or man rather than God? <laughs> That's, it's preposterous. And there's implications here because this means that a government, if they've been given their authority, they're required to obey God in the laws they create. There are big implications here. Many implications here. And so we obey God rather than man, even when the government tells us what to do. If they contradict the word of God, the very clear principle in Scripture is that when they contradict the word of God, we obey God. That's a principle underneath us all that we need to have under us. 
And we'll consider more questions, difficult questions. Our nation right now, our government leaders, our president and his cabinet want to fund the murder of children in the womb. The willful termination of, of, of babies in the womb. They want you and I to pay our taxes in order for women who are often lied to about what's going on to go into a clinic and put their babies to death by a doctor in white robes with sanitary equipment all around them in this nice clean environment. They want us to pay for that. You and I, with our labor, pay for that. And we're going to have to have some really serious discussions whether Christians should be paying for abortions. Whether this is a valid use of tax money in relationship to these texts that we're going to be looking at. I'm not going to get into the, the issue of vaccines right now. I'm not going to tell anybody what to do with them. But these vaccines that we have, that many of you have gotten, my father got one. Every one of them were tested using fetal tissue. They don't all have fetal tissue in them. But they all were used, tested at least, on fetal tissue taken from abortion, aborted fetuses. One from the 1970s, one from the 1980s. Johnson & Johnson, 1985 abortion. The other ones are 1978 abortion, I think. And they used fetal tissue to make sure the vaccinations work. And the problem that you get into there is you get into the problem of should government agencies be promoting our health, the health of the strong, by the use of cells taken from an aborted human life. They're mandating these vaccines now. This is not just a matter of conscience. They're mandating them. These are big issues that we're facing. I want to end like this, though. I want to remember Christ and his nature of submission, his meekness. Remember one of the great themes of what we've just come from in chapter 12 was humility. How a Christian lives in this world in humility. Twice in chapter 12, Paul talks about how we live out our lives as Christians within the church and the greater culture in humility. You're going to repay evil for evil? You're going to do that because you're proud and you're demanding your own way. No, we're going to live not reviling when we're reviled because we're going to be humble. We're going to live by faith in Christ. But notice Christ in the nature of his submission. The very nature of submission often involves some measure necessary measure of meekness or humility. In fact, it does require that. And no greater meekness was ever displayed than when Jesus was being cross-examined by Pilate, the governor of Palestine. Now Jesus said, 
all authority in heaven and earth is mine, has been given to me. It says of Jesus that he created everything, that everything was made through him, the word that became flesh. The whole life and ministry of Jesus is one of humility. But when we see in John chapter 19, Jesus before Pilate, this governor that was the ruling governor of the region of Palestine at this time, questioning Jesus, cross-examining him. Are you guilty of what they accuse you of? Jesus responds this way to Pilate in verse 11. You would have no authority over me. Over me. (laughs) To judge me. Unless it was given to you by above, from above meaning from my Father. Jesus humbled himself to the judgment of wicked and sinful men. Why did he do it? For two reasons. To obey the Father, to subjugate himself to the Father as our mediator, and to save us from our sin. It took his submission to sinful rulers who were doing sin in order for you and I to have our sins forgiven. In his meek response, that was meek (laughs) to Pilate, that was meekness, Jesus upholds both God's authority and Pilate's as being derived from God. And in submitting to judgment, to the judgment of Pilate, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. We will ask ourselves some hard questions as a result of Romans 13, 1 through 7. And I pray we get those questions right. But let us remember that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and bearing that humility, he meekly submitted himself to governmental authorities, the contradiction of men, the scriptures call it, who could not have been more wrong in their opposition to him. He gave himself up to their God-ordained authority for our salvation. And so... By that, I want us to leave here today not fighting against submission to the government, but saying, thank you, God, that our Lord Jesus Christ submitted to the government that you placed over him as a true man. Yes, the God-man, but a man under subjection to Pilate in that sinful governance for our salvation. These are huge things that we're considering. Let's pray for God's help as we do so. Our Father, we humble ourselves before you. We want to be salt and light in this world. And Christians have been persecuted in this world by evil governments for thousands of years. And it hasn't been for nothing. It hasn't been in vain 
And yet we know that in submitting to our government, we cannot disobey you. And in submitting to our government, we cannot promote evil in this world. Help us to be ones who hear your word and not all the voices that are out there. There are so many confusing voices and it destroys the clarity of your truth. Help us to hear your word and be doers of it. And so glorify our Father in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.